Hey, welcome to the Love Shared Podcast from the River Church in Redlands. David Carnes here with the latest in the Dialogue series, our monthly discussion where we sit down with some great guests and dive into big topics at the intersection of faith and society. Today's show is Race and Unity in the Church, and our host again is the River's own Nick Intout, and he sat down with two fantastic guests with a lot to say on the topic. If you'd like to join us for the next discussion, it'll be Wednesday, March 23rd at 6.30, and we'll have more information up on Facebook leading up to it. So check out the show notes, tell a friend, and join us. With that, here we go. This is something I'm really excited about talking through, and um, it's something that uh, growing up, I grew up in a church that was more, uh, that was pretty multicultural and multiracial, and when I was about 14, my family um, started attending a different church in the suburbs, and uh, it was just a different experience, and so for me, I've always had a real passion to see um, all races and colors uh, ex- exist in, in sort of a, um, you know, a flourishing relationship as the body of Christ, and where we were appreciating, uh, appreciating differences and celebrating um, you know, different styles, but also just uh, different places of life. And so this is an exciting uh, topic for me personally, and I feel really privileged to have um, Pastor Green from Second Baptist Church in Redlands. Uh, just met yesterday, and um, we're really uh, looking forward to learning together and learning from you. Um, he has been an incredible community activist uh, in Redlands for the last 30 years some years, and um, yeah, that's a long time. Community activist? Yeah, community activist, okay. that's the word, that's the word. <laughs> uh, but been pastoring here for uh, a long time, and um, we're just excited to learn from you. I learned that Second Baptist Church was the oldest black church, or black it Baptist? It is the oldest African-American church. In the Inland Empire, it's one of the oldest in the Inland in the Inland Empire. It's one of the oldest. We were incorporated. In other words, we got our papers in 1892, but we existed in 1889. Wow, 1892. I'm not going to try to do math right now. <laughs> That's a long time ago. That's yeah. awesome. And you haven't been there the whole time. Might look like it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, would you, uh, Pastor Green, just by way of introduction, say a little bit about uh, your your call to Redlands and um, how long you've been doing ministry here? Uh, maybe kind of just a brief intro of yourself, how you got into ministry and why you would even be interested in um, doing this tonight. Okay, I'll try to remember all that. <laughs> I came to Redlands... Um, with my wife and two children, one age four and the other age two. Um, when, when I got to Redlands, I fell in love with the church that I was called to. I mean, it's not every day a pastor gets to fall in love. And I mean, it was like instant. And uh, there was a relationship from from the gate, even though there were perimeters. 
I was sharing the other day that upon my early days here in Redlands, well, let me give you a little bit of something, something about me. I was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and we lived on the other side of what you would say the other side of tracks or the colored Negro part of town. My parents were, were devout Christians and they were socialites. Um, and I say that because I still remember the parties at, at our house. I did not know I, had, I was clueless as to issues of color because the side of town that we lived on, we lacked for nothing. We, we, our church was black, our members were black, our, our teachers in our school were black, our, the students were black. In other words, we weren't aware that there was segregation. I didn't know that till I came to California in terms of it was a total reverse. Um, not having black teachers as you grow up, not having role models that you're used to seeing. You've are, in other words, you can't tell me they don't exist because I've already experienced them. So that's kind of, of, of a background on me in terms of, um, coming from a culture where you didn't know because you didn't lack. In other words, in our neighborhood, we felt proud about ourselves and we were, we were driven to do better. But um, my parents moved to, to Compton and then from Compton to Pacoima and from Pacoima to Pasadena. And that was my area of, of growing up until I was able and blessed to go off to college. In coming to Redlands, the only thing I knew about Redlands was the University of Redlands because a few of my friends in high school um, were graduated from the University of Redlands. So I knew that that much existed, but I had never personally been in Redlands. Now, the history of Redlands in terms of black churches, there were there were three that were known. There were three that were known. Second Baptist is one of those three. There's another church building that's still here in Redlands, but people do not know of its history um, or they don't talk of its existence. And, and that's St. Paul AME, and it's on High Street. Um, but because of a lack of membership, um, it was closed. Then there was a, a split or a division in Second Baptist and another church evolved called Community Baptist Church. Now, the thing is, Community Baptist is how I got my start in Redlands. My father um, and the pastor of Community Baptist were friends and my father was doing a revival. And um, one night he asked me to stand in his place. And having preached that night, then, then the pastor of community had told me there was a church in Redlands that's looking for a pastor, and he'd like to recommend me. 
That's how I got to Redlands. Wow. So based on one sermon, they gave you a job? I mean, or they offered well, you a job? Well, Must have no. been a good sermon. Yeah. I had to go to that church. <laughs> and they had to hear me. So um, that's, that's kind of the history of me coming to Redlands. Um, ben, uh, you, uh, oh, 10 years ago, or how many years ago that moved to Seattle? from the Midwest and planted a church along um, an uh, area of Highway 99. Will you just kind of describe that and how you've seen division or maybe even separation between people um, and how this kind of fits within your your wheelhouse, the conversation tonight? Yeah, um, glad to be here. Glad to be here with you, Pastor Green. Um, so I... A little bit of my story, yeah, 10 years ago, moved to Seattle, and I kind of came through, like, all these, the traditional hoops and obstacles of my denomination, which is the Christian Reformed Church, which this church is a part of. I kind of went through, I often joke, like the Apostle Paul, like, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like, I've, I did the whole thing by the books, and yet, always sensed that God had me on this journey, calling me to the fringe of what I understood the church to be. And so um, I had this calling into church planting in Seattle to start a new community. And really, um, I was, I was, so I was a Spanish major in college. Uh, I taught um, ESL to migrant workers on farms in Michigan and uh, did student te- uh, teacher aiding at an inner city school in Grand Rapids, was part of a diverse church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So I always kind of felt like I, I really was drawn to, felt called to uh, multicultural communities, that there was something there. I mean, there's probably curiosity, but also this sense that I, there's something to learn here. And, and actually that if we look at the, the scriptures, there's always God calling people who are strangers and who are part to, to come to know one another. So you think of the, the Jews and the Gentiles and whatnot. So I come out to Seattle, and I'm thinking... I remember going to this one neighborhood, Columbia City, and I really felt like like that's where I wanted to be. Columbia City, uh, this one day in particular, I was kind of scouting out this neighborhood, trying to hear the spirit, like are we being called here? And I was eating um, with a guy from Honduras and a guy from Nigeria at a Mexican taco truck in the parking lot of a clothing store for selling clothes for African-American men owned by a Chinese guy. I was like, this is a dream. Like, this is the kingdom come. This is where I want to be. And yet, like, it wasn't, it was like a month later, my wife and I were having a conversation. About, like, just like, so where are we at? What do we sense God calling us to? And it was kind of out of nowhere, but it felt very, very much like the spirit was was guiding us in this direction that we were being called to, basically to the neighborhood we were already in. And it was um, specifically this old state highway called Aurora Avenue, Highway 99, that runs north of Seattle. And it's an area with all these rundown motels, used car lots, fast food joints. Every city has this street, really. And um, we had had a few experiences where we we were visiting these motels and these doors would open and yeah, we would find the stuff that's the stereotype of the street, folks struggling with addiction. But guess what? They're mostly like war veterans who've been neglected, and, and it's men and women struggling with mental illness and 
and there's women in prostitution, but you also had young families, single moms fleeing domestic violence. There was this whole diverse community behind the doors of these motels, and they're essentially these folks living in these places. Um, basically, like, not very affordable, low-income housing was how these motels function. And there was something about, like, God opened our eyes to, to this community, like, right in our neighborhood, and we had this, you know, the question was like, well, if anyone is called to to be neighbors and to love and and be in community with these people, it would be it would be the body of Christ. So that was a bit of a, a turn, though, because I re- it, it it meant being called not so much to a um, like a multicultural uh, diversity, but more actually the the predominant issue was socioeconomic, uh, because this area, Seattle, where where we've landed, is. Um, it's North Seattle, and up until the I think it was in the, up until the 1940s or even after that, there was a city ordinance that was like a curfew that that prohibited African Americans from coming north of what's called the Ship Canal, and we live north of the Ship Canal, and that has made a lasting impact on the makeup of of our community. And, and if you think about, you know, lots of people think Seattle, very progressive and inclusive and all these, these, these kind of value for diversity, there are still, we are a city that is, um, that we have systemic racism throughout how we are structured as a city. And it shows up in all sorts of other ways. Last thing I'll say related to that too is, um, and then you can take over, but the other dynamic being that we in our city, it was actually just, I think, two days ago. Or sorry, it was like a couple days ago. It was um, Japanese Internment Remembrance Day. And I had never heard of this day, though I know the story that it speaks to. But, you know, World War II, as tensions are just heightened with Japan, there was immense suspicion all of a sudden of these Japanese families, these communities that had been around for generations, and so people were forced out of their homes and sent to internment camps. And this happened in California, mm-hmm. all the way up the West Coast, um, mainly. And so, again, that, too, is part of the story of the city I love, Seattle, which is supposedly a very progressive, inclusive place that values diversity. So we have these, these narratives um, that still continue to inform how our city functions, how our communities interact. And, um, yeah, I guess I'll just finish with that. So, as in your experience uh, as a church planner uh, in Seattle, you recognize that there's, there's more dividing us than just race, although that's a part of it, our history and our, our, you know, the story that has been told uh, for the last however many years in a city, um, you know, there's residual effect and impact. Um, where have you seen that in Redlands, uh, kind of the, 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 the existing division based on things that happened historically? You know, people, I, I hear people say things, well, like, you know, race isn't really an issue anymore. That was... That was some- what what people? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's I'm, not I'm really. Being, I'm, when I say that, I'm being honest when I say what people, and and Seattle does not have a monopoly on this. The Latin community, the Hispanic community, um, 
back in the day in California when there was this fear, and fear is always a factor, but when there was this fear, unemployment and and uh, losing your jobs, uh, those in authority passed a law to just go through downtown L.A. and parts of L.A. and just scoop up any Mexicans they could find and put them on trains and ship them back to Mexico, even though they were citizens. You know, that's that's not something new, but it's something invisibly buried. It's in, It's invisibly buried. In other words... We don't really talk about it. Um, and, and just as you spoke of in terms of the Japanese internment, um, African-Americans have had a long history of internment. And we think because Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, the internment ended. But it's called redlining. It's, it's called you can't get a loan to live on a certain side of town. Uh, it's called your rates go up according to your zip code, but it's it's still the same thing. And and we hear of other, you know, races, cultural groups um, getting, for lack of a better word, we want to give you some some reprisals for the damage we did. And yet the African-American is still waiting in line. You know, we're like, well, when is our turn? And that is, that is the issue. That is, that is, to me, that's the issue that um, created Black Lives Matter. That's the issue that created the issue of saying, um, well, when will we get justice? We, we, we see, you know, justice being divvied out, but we don't get it. And so they, they have come up with a, a, an alternative to the method of Dr. King or to the method of the church or to the method of prayer. They've come up with an alternative to just act out. But you have to understand the act out is because of injustice and they don't see an answer. They don't see an end to it. All they see is, or all we see is, you will be found guilty in the media, but you will be set free in the courtroom. No reprisals. And I, I say that not lightly, as I shared with you on yesterday. I wasn't in Redlands that long. I wasn't in Redlands that long. But I typically did not resemble the uniform of a clergy. You know, you wouldn't spot me in a crowd is what I'm trying to say. Um, and on one day, my daughter, we, 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 were, we were approaching Easter and I, I knew to go get her some shoes. I had been in this store before and it was in Redlands and um, I had just walked in the store, but the thing is I had one of my youth with me and we were both dressed like what society would call hoodies or, or thug or, or common life. 
And I went straight to the section. I knew her size. I knew what I was looking for. And I did not see Easter shoes on the shelf. Upon leaving the store, we were confronted. No, we were swarmed by Redland's finest. We were swarmed. Not only were we treated hostile, hostilely, but they made interjections on our character that weren't deserving. They made statements about us being loiters and about me going from one store to another. And in my mind, I knew I couldn't act out, but I wanted to because this was an unjust. In other words, I'm like, you can write whatever you want on that piece of paper. You can say whatever you want on a piece of paper. And chances are the court will take your word because you wear a badge. Simply because you were, but it's not true. And so I, I you know, I, I, I kind of like there were times when I challenged him. And then there were times when I backed off because I did not want one of my youth to end up in jail with me. I knew his parents wouldn't understand that because I wouldn't understand that. As a former youth pastor, that would have been a bad youth event. That would have been a bad youth jail event. With your youth yeah. pastor. Yeah. So I don't know this city. I don't know Redlands that well. Mm-hmm. But I simply told the officer, when you're done, I want your badge number and I want your name. And I made that clear to him. I received that. Then they left. I was hot. I was livid. I went to the police department, and you know how you go and there's there's protocol, there's a receptionist, or there's a staff person, may I help you? What do you want? You want to file a complaint? I just wanted to see the chief. I, I don't want to talk to anybody but the chief. I want to talk to the person that's in control of the officers that patrol the city. At that time, his name was um, Brinkley, and uh, he had a reputation. In the black community, he had a reputation. But being honest with you, I didn't meet that reputation. He took me into his office, and I shared with him what went down. And I told him that kind of officer will create a riot. That kind of behavior is a thing that ignites anger and, 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 and people to act out. It's like you inflame it. He responded to my cry. Mm. Now, that's, that's what I can tell you about the Redlands chief of police. He did respond to my cry. Not only did he respond to my cry, but I ended up being a chaplain in the Redlands Police Department. Mm. Mm. There are a lot of stories in Redlands from Latinos, African-Americans, low-income families, where law enforcement has taken liberties. My son, I I was proud to present my son a car. Um, I say presented, it wasn't brand new. It belonged to his grandmother. Hmm. 
it was a Thunderbird, but now that he has graduated from college, you need some wheels. I mean, from high school, you need some wheels. Because at the time, he was driving to Riverside for, for college. One day, his car, um, I don't know if it stopped. No, it didn't, it didn't. It was something wrong with his car. It may have been emissions, whatever it was. But um, the police department pulled him over. It wasn't that, in other words, I was thankful he didn't get a ticket. I was thankful they didn't tow the vehicle. But the language they used on him and the words they referred to his car deeper than saying pile of junk. Those are the kind of things that, that create issues. They create issues. And I don't think people are aware of the, 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 the little teeny things that create issues. Now, time passed and I served under Nelson and then Beerman as chief of police. And Beerman started a, a program, community policing. What year, what year was Beerman the chief of police in reference? I don't know what year. I know what year that I came under it because what happened is I left Redlands. I moved my family to Arizona. And then in 2000, we came back. I left in 95 and in 2000, we came back to Redlands, back to second Baptist church. And, uh, that's when Beerman was now chief of police and he started a, a program, community policing, which, which I fell in love with. But one of the tools that he gave Redlands was involving clergy on issues of the community. In other words, it was a, it was a target to get clergy involved in the issues. Now, one of the things, if, you, if you're from Redlands, you know, every year there's always the Latino and blacks getting into a fight in September. It's, it's not something you look forward to. It's just something that this is the history. This demon exists. But, but because he got the clergy involved and because we were allowed to go on campus and because we were allowed to allow them to talk to us, it stopped. It stopped. And that's something we don't realize is that communication, having a dialogue, having a forum, it, it, it helps to take the invisibility that hurts us away. Because our thing is, nobody's listening, it doesn't matter. Nobody, nobody even hears us bleed. But when, there, when there's, there's dialogue, yeah, you can diffuse a whole lot. Because sometimes people don't want to hear what you say. They just want to be heard. Mm -hmm. And when they're allowed to explode or express themselves, then and only then are they ready to listen. Can I jump yeah. in? Um, I want to share a bit of a story. So I'm, I, I'm a pastor as well, and I also, you couldn't pick me out in a crowd in a different style, I guess. But um, It's the man bun. It's the man bun, which you had one like, an hour ago, I got yep. cut off. But yep. anyways, the um, so a couple years ago, uh, the the police in Seattle, it was there's like there's just a lot of tension, but be between police 
well, sort of against the police because the communities were not, minority communities were not being heard. And specifically, we had all sorts of incidents of police violence against African Americans, Hispanics, and then and, and Native Americans in our community, including uh, a Native man who was who was shot like you know a dozen times within ten seconds after a police officer pulled up because the man was was um, intoxicated, but he had this little knife, which is a carving knife that he carves little little like totem poles with. So there was there was kind of this all this tension in Seattle and around that same time I like within in a one week period I saw in my neighborhood I saw police pull guns out twice. So the first incident was they had pulled over a car um with a couple African American men in it and they they're pulling out like multiple guns and I was in the Starbucks I'm like watching out the window and and but you know you're thinking if if they're pulling these guys over and then they're pulling out their guns you're kind of assuming there must be something they know i mean this is my vantage point right of sort of privilege and not having to worry about that kind of situation and sure not i mean within 45 minutes or whatever you just see them parting ways you don't see the police officers apologizing or anything like that it's just they're letting them go you're like well what possibly happened a week after that i'm walking back to my house about 2 blocks from my house I had left our neighborhood, like our community center that our church started, where I saw where there was a man um, named John there, Native American man, and he had, he was intoxicated, and he had, um, you know, so we're like, you, you gotta go because he was just causing problems, and he had this like toy, toy like cowboy gun you can picture. It's like really silver, and it's got like orange, like a cap on it. It's so obviously a toy. And he he's left before me, and then I'm I'm walking back towards my house a few blocks away, and somehow, in a matter of a few minutes, this man has been like the cops have pulled over. They have him on the hood of their vehicle, and and so I pull out my camera, you know, my phone. I start filming, step back in the street just to get a vantage point. You know, I'm kind of speaking up, like, "What's going on?" and and the cop just gets in my face and, and yells at me, get the out of the road or I'm going to give you a ticket. You know, and, and um, obviously this, this all kind of rattled me. This is in my neighborhood, and uh, I kind of have this, this heart for justice, and I'm seeing injustice. And it's, it's like I'm telling multiple stories now, but about six months later, um, I get pulled over driving my minivan with my, my three kids. Um, and I will say, I am though I am a pastor, I really like the story of Jesus flipping tables over the temple because I'm, I'm not always the best at staying, like keeping my cool. I'm not. I'm, I'm learning. I mean, we used to get in a few, <laughs> in college, we'd get in a few fighting little competitive. scrums. Competitive. You're, competitive. You're competitive. We, I'm competitive. But anyways, um, I'm like driving... I, I'm, I end up having to like go into the opposite lane of traffic. I'm driving somewhere, and it looks like there's all these people on the road for like a walkathon, and there's like five cops up front, but none of them are directing traffic. And as far as I can tell, I can't turn right, so I got to go in the opposite lane. There's no cars coming that way, and I take a left on the side street, and I'm trying to do a Y turn, like you know, 80 point Y turn in my minivan, and suddenly this cop walks up, and he just he doesn't say he just like points his finger down towards the ground and has a stern look on his face and he wants me to lower my window 
And I'm not going to get into all the details, the words I exchanged, but basically he ends up telling me that there's multiple issues. I'm dr- he's yelling at me. I'm driving in the wrong lane. I'm telling him that I'm being smart with him. I'm telling him, talking back. I'm like, well, you guys weren't doing your job. You're eating donuts or something. I don't know. And I'm, I'm running my mouth. And eventually he ends up telling me I have like $350 worth of tickets, which just makes me lose it. And I exchange more choice words with him. Anyways, you know what ends up happening with that situation? I get a ticket. And I drive off. And that's it. And it's one of those moments, and the reason I kind of share this is, you know, you're asking sort of rhetorically, like, who says, right, who are the people saying that race is no longer an issue? And the reality is, myself and lots of, of white folk, <laughs> we would say, I, I love black people. I got a few Korean friends. I love, you know, we, I, I, my kids go to school with some like Hispanic kids, and I love them. And we would say, like, so there's not a problem. I don't have a problem. And yet the fact that Pastor Green gets, like, gets swarmed and all these assumptions are made about him and has that kind of interaction, and the fact that I am literally cursing at police officers and I just get tickets and I get to go home is clearly indicative that there is an issue. And it, it might not be something that I can say, well, personally, I'm here, but it shows that there is a systemic issue of racism in our country. And to continue and, on what you said. And I was going to say, and not just race in Redlands, there's also a sexism issue in Redlands. And, and, it's, and it's invisible. And when I say invisible, it's not spoken of but it's clear in, in the fellowship of churches. I know that some, some have preferences on who can be in the pulpit, male or female, but there are a lot of issues that we don't, we treat as invisible. And it, it comes out in our actions. In other words, we deny people based on our preference, not based on right or wrong, just based on our preference. And I would say you spoke a little bit about like Black Lives Matter. I'd be curious to hear more of your thoughts. But um, I think what's so critical is so, especially as a white male, like first step is I, I might say, oh, there's not a problem. I think there's not a problem, whatever. But the number one thing I need to do like, I need to go even back to what you said. I need to listen. I need to be willing to listen and learn. And there's something about, I feel like sitting here, you, given your work and the communities you're a part of, for you to have some critique of Black Lives Matter or say urge it in this direction, or that that makes sense. But honestly, for, for most white people, I kind of feel like that's really not our call to make right now. Like, we've done so much silencing and turning the other direction that step one is we need to listen. Well, just Just... For me, Black Lives Matter is targeted to the police department, period. I mean, in other words, they're the ones in authority, and their target response is to law enforcement. Uh, The problem I have with Black Lives Matter is that it is not consistent with the gospel that we preach. 
All lives matter, period, period. But I understand the cry that you're ignoring the prison system. You're ignoring the justice system. And you're ignoring the breakup of the African-American family. It doesn't make any sense for America as, as, as advanced as it is to have more prisons than anywhere else in the world. And it doesn't make any sense. African-Americans do not make up you know, 50% of the population, and yet we're 75% of the prison free labor, as with minorities. So when they say it matters, what they're saying is you're ignoring the differences. You're ignoring them, and so uh, they act out. My problem is then you ought to act out on black-on-black crime as well, because those lives matter too. You know, I... I think that sometimes we can become so angry at the media because it just seems that the media shows you what they want us to hear and they edit out parts of truth. Well, African Americans and I would say Hispanic Americans, I would say Native Indians, we have a history of never trusting the media anyway. We have that history. And, and much, much of African-American history comes from the Civil Rights Movement, where the media would, would target Dr. King or say things about the Civil Rights Movement. We knew wasn't true, so we, we, we really didn't buy into it. Um, but that's different today. Our children watch TV. Our children watch media. And I need you to hear what I'm saying. I'm looking at you. Some of you look like you could be parents. And as holy and as Christian and as devout as you are, I might say something to you. I might even physically hit you. And you will still turn the other cheek. But let me attack your child. Will you turn the other cheek? Then you can understand the cry of the community that says, you're doing it to our children and their lives matter. You, and for you, that's a real personal thing. Um, you know, to, <laughs> you, you're a grandpa. Okay, it's yeah. Not just it's, your we talked about some things. Yeah, it's not, like, no, no, it's not just it. your. It's not just your children, but even your grandchildren. Yes. And when they witness yes. certain things, it, yes. you you see and you yes. heard from them just the despair yes. that it can create. Our children are, for the most part, children who grow up in Redlands. For the most part, they're innocent, no matter what their ethnicity is. For the most part, they're they're innocent, and I guess that's one of the positive things about um, seeking residency in Redlands is that it, it, it doesn't operate um, to, the, to, to the high level um, that other cities operates on in terms of um, the lack of opportunities. Our children 
go to schools that have the arts. Um, my children go to schools where they can excel in sports. But the problem is there is no identity in the school for our children. Redlands can come up with all the excuses it wants, but you cannot justify not having one African-American on the police department for years. No. Role models. Not just a principal at a school, but how about in the classroom? Those, those things, they matter. I actually have a question for you related to... Um so as I described, my my church were very much a white church and very much in community with those, like, you know, kind of across socioeconomic lines in our neighborhood. Um, but how does a church like mine, and you're speaking a little bit to, like, what a community can do, you should have role models and police and whatnot, but how does a, how does a, a white church like mine learn from an African-American church. Um, have you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, open your eyes and look. Open your eyes and look. I am proud that our church has at least given birth to no less than eight African-Americans in law enforcement. Three here in Redlands. I'm proud of that. I am proud that our church has had opportunities um, given us where our children met the mayor, met the chief of police. And I mean, personally, but how many children ever get that exposure, get that experience? And when you say church, um, one of the, one of the, the issues with, with churches in Redlands and predominantly white churches because Redland is predominantly white is that we're cliquish. We don't go outside the box. We feel comfortable like, likes like, and we don't go outside the box. When, when the African-American settled in Redlands, many of them were servants um, many of them worked as servants in the city of Redlands. Second Baptist was a servant's church in, in that regard, even though it had some professional members. But what I'm saying is the reason we are Second Baptist is because there was a First Baptist already established. Uh, one comment. Re reformed folks know very well that you might have first church and then by, there's often like six or seven of them because we're very good at, okay. you know, dividing and for less healthy reasons. So I'm eager well, to there was a say. first Baptist church and we worship there. The African-Americans worship there um, with, along with, and and there, there, there is that that fellowship relationship. So it wasn't it wasn't an issue of of racism um, in terms of saying that's why there's a second Baptist church. No, our style of worship 
um, was hindered in, in our cultural understanding. In other words, we like to say amen. We like to speak up. We like certain rhythms and in worship. And so the members of First Baptist helped the colored members, because that's what we was called back then, to form another church. Now we got to come up with a name. Well, there's a First Baptist. We still want to be Baptist, so we're the Second Baptist. And so that's how the church started. But it wasn't started because they were kicked out, put out. No, First Baptist paid the, the minister's salary, helped build in terms of donated lumber so that they could exist. And so when you say, what can we do? There are a lot of programs, but they lack funding. Programs. What do you mean programs? Something as simple as why can't the city celebrate Martin Luther King Day like it celebrates all its other days? Why can't the city fund, fund? And I don't mean, see, the way the city funds is you got to be low income before we put a dollar to you. Well, there are a lot of African-American families that are not low income but they do not have the money to send their children off to camps. If your ministry is doing a camp, maybe you're going to Catalina, maybe you're going to, on a mission, why can't you fund? And, and we're not hidden. You know where to find us. We're not hidden. And it's easy. But those are ways of involvement. One of the things that I love about what you've been a part of in Redlands, uh, you really, really value dialogue. And you've said, you know, one of the things about Black Lives Matter is there's this outcry because people haven't been heard. Um, where and how do we create spaces where dialogue can happen and can continue to happen in constructive ways? And I would say this 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 is this is a good this is a good start here just in terms of even at this is my first time at the river period okay in spite of my history of here at Redlands this is my and and it's a beautiful facility and and it's dialogue um being transparent with you when my daughter first um talked to me about um talking with you I was suspicious very reserved and suspicious. I said, they're going to edit it? I said, well, no, I, I, I don't want them to edit what I have to say. That's the problem we have. They're always cutting out the, the, the good stuff to hear what they want to hear. You know, um, and so I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll meet with them first, and, and let's see where we go from there. And so that's why I said dialogue. Now, one of the things that... that uh, happened here in Redlands, and I'm sure there are things in other parts of the country, but here in Redlands specifically, our schools have come under a program where children can now get tickets, legal tickets, like, you know, like a traffic ticket, where you can get a behavioral ticket, and you'll have to go to court. And you have to appear before a judge. But that ticket is a dot. And, 
And it's a systematic way of collecting dots at an early age. So one of the things, Redlands has a, has a curfew. I mean, and, and as most states, cities have curfews, I understand that. But kids weren't going home after the football game. They weren't going home. You know, they're hanging out. And I did not want them to get a ticket. So I went to the uh, police department and the chief helped me to speak to persons on the council and I pleaded with them to give us a place where kids can hang out. We're, we're not that financially stable to own a gym. We're not that financially stable um, to have paid staff. And so we went in consortium with the police department. In other words, we're partnering to give kids a safe place to hang out. And so that's what we do. We call it midnight hoops, but it's a place where they can go and not get a ticket. Now, the beauty of that came, the beauty of that came one time. I mean, there's a lot of incidents, but the beauty of it came one time. We, we didn't know. We had no clue that teenagers would bring their little brothers and sisters we were clueless about that because they didn't take them to the game. But for a lot of them, that's a single parent's time out. You, or you're going to watch your brother. You're going to watch your sister. And so we didn't realize, you know, that, that this was a part of the population. Y'all with me? One of the criterias that we asked was that a law enforcement officer was always there. Even if they, and it, it, many of them have come and they volunteered their time. They, when they've been there, they've been there because they volunteered their time. But it was beautiful to see a six-year-old. And stand up for a minute. You you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to see what I saw. It's a six-year-old kid, and you're a law enforcement officer. Yeah, and you, 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 you're strapped. You got everything that's there, and the little six-year-old is doing this. They have never been that close. You have to understand. These are children whose parents have said, "Don't you tell them nothing." You see a cop, you run, and he's. Feeling safe, curious, but safe. That's what's needed. Not to see them as tyrants, as the media often portrays, but to see them there for your good. That's beautiful. That came about because of your relationship, because of the dialogue that the initiative that you took to sort of be heard and to yeah. say, this isn't okay, what can we do together in partnership, right. uh, which I think is just right. is powerful and beautiful. Now, how do we get the churches on board? How do we get the churches on board? Uh-huh. That's part two. <laughs> hey, um, I want to I just, I'm sure we have people with questions or comments. 
uh, here. And so I want to just open it up to the audience. If you guys have anything that you'd like to say. Before y'all, I just have one. Please let me allow, ask, let me ask one question. I want to hear more about what you did in Seattle in terms of you started this from the gate and it was targeted for the invisible population that we don't see on Sunday. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so I just, the, the way that we talked about it, which I was often that we needed to, um, that there was some, uh, there was something else going on in this neighborhood that's beyond the thing that's normally talked about, that there was actually, there were communities of people, not just people who are in need, but actually people who, who are in relationship with one another and are quite resilient as they're dealing with all sorts of struggles in their lives. And, and as we kind of entered in the, into the neighborhood, which we, we lived there as well, um, still do, the number one posture was this idea that was listening like that. And, and I would say, as someone who, like I joked, right, the Pharisee of Pharisees, like I came up through this church planting system, and the idea with church planting, often it can be like, well, we need to start a church, meaning we need to like get a worship, worship service going in a place. And it doesn't matter. We might do a demographic study to find a na- about a certain neighborhood, but typically what happens is where can I get like a cheap building or facility or something like that? Or where can I have this church situated in, say, a particular suburban area where I can get all these new families who are moving there? But our number one posture was to listen. Listen to what the Spirit's doing and listen to the people who who are the invisible ones. And out of that place, like kind of the next thing was really this sense of call to hospitality. That at its core, the good news is a message of hospitality. It's a message of God moving towards us. God moving towards that which is strange and alienated and through his son creating new peace and bringing reconciliation. And so, so we, we thought, okay, rather, like, and rather than demonizing our neighbors, which it's so easy, it's like that's what, the, what most, that's the tendency, because look, I don't, want, I don't want a John picking up a prostitute right in front of my house. I've got kids. I don't want to come across using needles while I'm out for a walk, um, you know, I start to feel afraid. But the reality is hospitality, like it, it is the opposite of, of fear. It's like, it's like the, the antidote to fear. Um, it was recently, like you probably know the phrase, um, like xeno, xenophobia. It's like that fear of the other. And right now, like political discourse so much in our culture is this rhetoric of fear. It's xenophobia. We're afraid. We're afraid of people, people groups that we don't understand. We're afraid of cultures we don't understand. We're afraid of religions that we don't understand. And what's really interesting, I think it's in Hebrews or Romans. You can, you can help me out on this. But, but there's this line about, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for in doing so, like you may, you are entertaining angels. And what's interesting is that word hospitality, like the actual Greek, Greek word is philoxenia. So it has that same word xenia, like xenophobia. So it has other, the word other in it. 
But instead of the phobia, the fear, it's actually phyla, which means love. So hospitality at its core is love of the stranger. And so to answer your question, I mean, that was really, it was like this constant sense of call to extend hospitality, to move towards the stranger. And in, as we do that, the Spirit of God, like, starts to create a new we, where we're not alienated by the color of our skin or or our, uh, we're male or female or Greek or Jew, all that I'm, stuff. I'm glad you, but that's, I, I hope y'all got that. I, I hope you got that. Hospitality. I hope you, you, you heard the word hospitality. Because I said, now what can we do to get churches on board? Our children see our reality before they see our revelation. Our children see our reality. And we can preach to our children revelation. But until that sermon becomes a reality, you missed hospitality. And here's what I'm saying. Joe lives in the on the Hispanic side of town. Fred lives on the African-American side of town. When Joe says, Fred, let's swap pulpits this Sunday. When our children see a different color in the pulpit, but the message is the same, you attack stereotypes come on by the way that's totally preachable our children see our reality before they hear a revelation can somebody write it down because that is going to be my next are you, are you preaching this sunday i'm not but that would be totally <laughs> preachable that's beautiful uh, and i will add i'll add this to like hospitality obviously we always think it's usually like i'm inviting over and we need to do that also really critical and and this is like in my community we can't just sit there and wait around and say oh like maybe like maybe someone new will come like so we actively with with our kids even i have a friend african-american pastor exact opposite side of town way down south clarence presley and every once in a while we just go and I'm not, i don't need to preach there i just go because we need to be with our brothers and sisters um and experience the body of christ in just a different expression so there's also that, like, just going and listening, sitting at the feet of another teacher. Beautiful. Comments, thoughts, audience, questions? I was a member of uh, one of the churches. He mentioned Community Missionary Baptist Church for 28 years. And uh, now I'm here. So um, I've seen the struggles uh, here in Redlands with the police, with the schools. I had children in the school district here. Mm -hmm. I didn't live here. I lived in Loma Linda, but that's just a rock Mm -hmm. throw. So, but I went to church in this town for 28 years. So uh, our churches, we uh, fellowshiped with each other. In fact, they were our sister church. And uh, um, my pastor was part of the clergy um, 
a fellowship there with the police and, uh, and a uh, um, chaplain as well. So um, this is just fabulous. I hope you keep this going on because uh, I, I see here at the river this community where we could use some endowment. <laughs> and, and we could uh, use uh, some knowledge because I had mentioned the first this, the first Sunday of this month, I had my uh, African gown on because this was Black History Month. Mm -hmm. And so a, a fella asked me, and he said, oh, I love your dress. And I said, yeah, this is Black History Month. Oh, what is that? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, boy, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we need some that. enlightenment here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, uh, um, you know. This is needed. This is needed all over Redlands, you yeah. know, the uh, swapping the um, pulpits. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful idea. That's a wonderful idea to do. So uh, just well, keep this up. I'm jealous of Pastor Green because for the last six months, uh, you know, I get to preach with you and Colleen and Leslie in the, you know, the <laughs> third row there. And it's a whole different kind of preaching when you got a couple people, you know, shouting amen. And how I all of a sudden get, you know, animated and encouraged. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, amen to that. That is amen. So uh, it's, been, it's been amazing for you. I, and, and I hope you feel that here, just how much we appreciate the initiative that you've taken um, to be at the river and to uh, help us and encourage us and um, I hope that is mutual, that we're, we're mutually encouraged in yes. it. So thank you so much, uh, Sharon. Yeah. So I'd have to say this is maybe a question for Pastor Green. Um, and I can only speak for myself personally. I feel like um, as a white male of privilege, you know, some, some guilt looking back. I teach middle school kids history, and I, and I try to teach them that in our history we have this huge sin of racism and um, prejudice and, and all of these things. Um, my question is, I feel a yearning for more diversity in our church here at the river or churches in Redlands. Um, in the African-American community, in your community, do you feel like there's also a sentiment, a feeling for more diversity? Do you think your congregation would be I mean, are they are they thirsting for things like that as well? Or I mean, we're I would, all comfortable. I would invite you when you get a clearance from your shepherd. <laughs> don't just, just just up and go get a clearance. I would invite you to worship with us. Our congregation, even though we are an African American church, we have a diversity in in the congregation as well. Um, areas. The wounding in areas, you know, when you talk about teaching history, my grandson um, goes to Moore, and for the month of February, the assignment was to, the homework assignment was to read, and they listed um, movies and books on the Holocaust and to do a paper on it. And that was like during Black History Month, right? We can't have nothing. Something just that simple. 
And I'm not saying it's not important to know that. But you don't hear what we're saying. That a little bit. Um, I hear... I hear sometimes voices that would say things like, well, if we didn't focus on race so much, you know, well, you can't help but pick up the newspaper and it's always got to describe somebody. And the first thing it's always got to say is, well, it was a Hispanic man that did this or whatever. And so you hear this, this sentiment sometimes, well, if we just pretended or acted like there were no differences, everything would be fine, which I think is foolish. But that's how Redlands acts. Redlands pretends there's no difference. Redlands pretends that we don't have a race problem here. Mm -hmm. That that some of my best friends are African American. Some of my best friends are white or Hispanic. They pretend that you're Hispanic, your African American, your non-white community doesn't see or feel the disparity. And we do. We just choose not to act out. Mm. Well, and I think we, we talked a little bit about that um, the other day, the idea of, well, I'm, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. <laughs> and I and when, he, when he said it, I said, who says that? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I, I actually, uh, you know, have, I, no, I really am colorblind. Though, like. I've, been, I've been questioning his colorblindness for a decade, like red-green. I'm glad I, I have a company now. But, I, you know, I shared a story uh, with you of a friend of mine from L.A. who um, came out of her home, and she was wearing her Sunday best, and she was uh, pulled over. Her husband had a gun drawn on him, and, you know, she was accused of being a prostitute. Um, while her husband was locked up in the back of her car. And she told this story through through tears. She's the prayer coordinator of a Christian Reformed camp that we have called Camp Dunamis, and one of the most powerful prayer warriors I know. And, you know, she was accused of being a prostitute. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I said, unfortunately, we don't get to be colorblind. Because if she was, if that was my wife, she would have never walked out of her front door and been pulled over and accused of prostitution in her Sunday best. Right. That doesn't happen. That would never happen anywhere in the United States. Um, but for my friend, who is um, black and Mexican, she calls herself Blacksican, uh, you know, this is a, this is a real thing. I, I also want to say, because I have family members, and I know you do too, who are police officers. And I have um, a, a number of people in our congregation who are police officers, and their job, especially in this climate, I had a conversation over um, Christmas break with my uh, family member. It is increasingly difficult, increasingly challenging in this sort in, in a culture um, that you know the the initial instinct um, is to sort of not trust and. Uh, where there isn't relationship, mm-hmm. um, it is so such a hard calling to live out. And so how do we as churches, this is why I love you, Pastor Green, uh, even though we only just met, is because you've gone and, and said, let's partner, let's work together. Mm-hmm. You got to understand that there is a problem. And, um, you know, how do we bridge this gap and bridge this divide together? And instead of just kind of, you know, throwing 
rocks at, at groups of people. You, you laid your life down and said, I'm going to give myself to, you know, okay. creating unity. Um, so, yeah, I just, what, what would you say to that? What would you say to, you know, you, you were a chaplain for, for police officers. Uh, you went in and, and coached and trained and cared for and loved. And um, how, do we, how do we keep doing things like that? And also acknowledge in our congregations, we have these men and women here who do care and want to do and feel called by God to protect and to serve. Um, I'll put the challenge to you. Um, I'm going to use scripture because a friend of mine showed the scripture to me. So I'm going to share that scripture with you in, in answer to what you said. Just show me your hands. How many of you have ever heard the words of Jesus um, when he um, was talking to the disciples, when he was talking to his church, and he said, the poor you will have with you always. How many of you all heard that? Okay. Then, then, then I'm on solid ground. Uh, yeah, I don't have to do the homework on that. But sometimes we overlook what Jesus was saying to the church, to his disciples. The poor you will have with you always. The poor you, race problems, you. Sexism problems, you. You will have it with you always but not in the kingdom of god but you will have it with you because you will not be hospitable to the poor when you give to the poor and i'm not talking about giving as in here's a fish give them a fishing pole and a book on how to fish when you give they won't be poor when you attack racism for what it is, it's ugly, it's demonic, and it is against the principles of the kingdom of God, period. And racism doesn't know a color. Let me do that again. Racism doesn't know a color. The scars of racism are the tears that we deal with. Rather, it's being an issue of being male, being female, being tall, fat, small, thin, skinny, white, black, Hispanic, Native American. We all have our own preferences, and you will always have it until you show some generosity, and that means an understanding of what it's like. One of our, in one of our youth sessions, um, we, we, we played a game, and, and, and we fixed it so they didn't understand. My wife cooked. We have a fellowship hall, so she cooked, and, I mean, it was smelling good. They were in the sanctuary, but, you know, you could still smell the food. And they all knew we were having, a, you know, a dinner after the Bible study. They all knew that. And so we were talking about the man at the pool of Bethesda and how he had nobody, you know, to to help him get in the water. And so we gave each of them cards. They just pulled a card out of a hat. And on each of the cards were characteristics. So 
one card would say, okay, you, you don't have a right hand or your left hand is broken or you're blind or you're lame. But everybody had a card. Now, some people had a helper card, meaning you're fine. But your job is to help someone else. You're fine. So then they had to address their role. In other words, if you couldn't walk, we tied your legs. If your hand, we tied your hand behind your back. If you're blind, you wore a blindfold. We said, okay, now we're going to finish this lesson after we eat. And so let's, let's pray, bless the food, and let's go into the fellowship hall. And, and uh, the helpers, I said, hold on, y'all helpers. Y'all got to go help people to the fellowship hall. Oh, I didn't know that's what that meant. Yeah, you got you got to help them. And not only that, but you got to feed the ones that ain't got no arms. You know, well, now you're smelling food and you're blindfolded and you don't know, you know, people, you hear people like, ooh, this is good, let me have some of that. You're like, what, 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 make sure you give me some of that. And, you know, and, and you get, now they're, now they're feeling this. So about 10 minutes went into it. And they're like, this ain't right. This, I wouldn't have signed up for this. <laughs> but then we, you know, then we said, okay, the lesson is over. And then we all ate. And then we went back and said, now, how did you feel about that? You want to attack racism? Be the guy on the other end of the joke. Be the girl on the other end of your assumptions. And tell me how you felt about it. Beautiful. I think uh, we're going to wrap it up unless there's any other final comments or questions. Ben, Pastor Green, uh, this was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, I'm so thankful for this, and I cannot wait to share the pulpit um, <laughs> and pass it on. So thank you guys so much for being a part of this. Thank you for you and the river and the church as a whole um, for, and I'll say this in terms of being a beacon for others to come and to find a place of growth and transparency. I would have never known about the river other than driving by, seeing it. And something just that simple goes a long way. And and y'all pray for my brother here. Don't let don't let him get away without being encouraged. Yeah. Because um, really the work that he he has done, and it hasn't been decided what he's going to do, but oftentimes God puts calling on people. They don't get thank you cards, mm. and they don't get to live to see the rewards of the generations to follow the ones that were delivered. I'm going to ask you to pray for Ben if you would in a second. But um, Ben is currently, he's, he's uh, coaching other churches all around the country in, um, in just how to do some of the work that they've seen God do. And um, he's actually, part of the reason he stopped in Redlands is um, to see me, but also to kind of coach the river and us and say, uh, you know, God, if, if God is calling you to be a part of something in, in North Redlands, uh, which our church announced a while back, um, you know, what does that look like? What does that expression look like? Um, what, what does a, a potentially church plant 
look like for the river. And so that's also part of why Ben is here. And so God has just gifted him tremendously um, in, in coaching and um, helping people organize and creating vision and practical next steps. And he's going a, a lot of different places, but it's a very uncertain work. He's raising support. And so there's a lot of uncertainties. Uh, today we were talking, and I hope this is okay for me to share, but it's kind of month to month, which is, uh, as a father of three, not always a great um, feeling, um, but it's, a, it's, you said too, a place of um, tremendous faith and where you're living by faith. Um, but we also, you know, we, we just really appreciate you, and I appreciate you. Um, I've seen just... Um, you know, yeah, just seeing you grow in, in a tremendous way, and you've been a huge gift to me and my family and uh, this church and, you know, a, a lot of people, a lot of pastors and leaders. And um, Ben's got a podcast that I would encourage you to listen to. It's really, really thoughtful and has been putting out, um, like, once a week, just really, really great 15, 20-minute um, snippets that sometimes, are challenging. Sometimes 30, you know, like a preacher, you kind of go a little long. <laughs> a little long. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Would, uh, would, would you be willing to pray? Thanks for joining us again, and we've got more dialogues coming up in the near future. If you'd like to join us and take part in the next one, we'll be at the River Church on Wednesday, March 23rd at 6.30 p.m. We'd love to see you there. If you haven't yet checked out Ben's podcast called Replacing Church, you're missing out. Links are all in the show notes, and you can find them on iTunes, so take a listen as soon as we're done here. As always, if you like the conversation, rate and review it, but even more important, tell someone else about it. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon enough with Dialogue 3.